Good morning. You are still listening to Africa Rise and Shine here in Channel Africa. I'm Tabiso Lohoko and it's uh, the second hour of, or rather, the third hour of the program. Malawi is a three Muslim groupings led by the Equadria Muslim Ulama Council have backed proposals by lawmakers to pass the termination of abortion bill. This is in contrast with the majority of Christian churches which are against the bill on grounds that it is against the biblical values. As George Mohango reports from Blentaya, protests are being planned by some members of the public and churches to pressure Parliament not to table the bill. Malawi's legislature was expected to deliberate and pass the termination of abortion bill at the last sitting of parliament, but failed to present it because of some glaring clauses that needed some clarifications from the framers of the bill. While there are growing differences within religious circles over the matter, the Muslim community backs the abortion bill. Vice Chairperson of the Kadria Muslim Ulama Council of Malawi, Sheikh Jim Slaimana said the Muslim groupings see no concrete reasons why parliamentarians should not table and pass the bill, saying it is a human rights piece of legislation. He said permission to terminate the pregnancy based on valid health and medical justifications are expounded in the books of Islamic jurisprudence. Human rights activist Twambiriri Mwanguru calls for proper civic education to enable Malawians understand contents of the proposed bill before it is tabled in Parliament. We need to have an adequate debate, get opinions, and then consolidate those opinions to say as a country, which is the direction that we want to take. Because each and every voice that is coming out is very important. So one, we have to, to, to check the right to health. Secondly, we have to check the right of the unborn child, whether the fetus or not. Uh, is it weaponry? So the dichotomy between the religious perspective, the health perspective, and the rights perspective is a very difficult one to agree. The Muslim community in Malawi has seen the backing of the Malawi Council of Churches about the proposal. Surveys show that various Christian churches independently have different opinions on the matter. And a religious network whose Secretary General is Reverend Kalinde has this to say. The commission said that uh, um, the abortion law should remain illegal, but there are certain grounds that were put, uh, that, were, uh, that were included, that should allow women to seek or to procure abortion. So what we are saying is that whatever uh, is being said, is, uh, from, especially from our, our friends, religious leaders, are trying to mis misinform people things that are not there, that things that are not in the, the, the built self, which is very unfair, which is a, a dishonesty on themselves. But human rights activist Mwanguru thinks it is the role of parliamentarians to go to their constituencies to seek advice before tabling the proposed law. Malawi will go by the voices of the people. The parliamentarians in parliament needs to get the opinion of the people from the constituents. What are the people saying? And let us consolidate those voices to produce one concrete answer to say, okay, I think as a country, this is the election that we need to take. So I would suggest that uh, members of parliament do consultations in their respective uh, constituencies and then the, uh, the opinions that will come, they are the ones that will form their decisions in parliament. But as a human rights activist, I both stand in between to say, under what circumstances uh, are we are we allowing the woman to abort? Is it is it a phrase to have? Those issues need to come out. And then there are those people that are raped and then they take unwanted pregnancies, early child marriages, under those circumstances. I mean, how do we now assist to say, let us allow this person to, to, to abort? Once we address these issues, I think we'll have a well-informed act or a well-informed bill in parliament that politicians can deliberate and pass on. Current state of affairs in Malawi is that health studies show that 31,000 Malawian women are treated for complications of unsafe abortion annually. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. The Polisario Front Independence Movement says it highly regrets the decision by the United States to recognize Moroccan sovereignty over the disputed territory of Western Sahara. President Donald Trump tweeted earlier that a deal has been struck for the normalization of relations between the states of Israel and Morocco, the fourth such agreement between Israel and the Arab world in recent months. 
As a part of the deal, Washington will now recognize Morocco's claim over the disputed region of Western Sahara, which was annexed by Rabat in 1975. Show and Brusby's reports. President Trump tweeted that he had signed a proclamation recognizing Moroccan sovereignty over the disputed regions of Western Sahara, calling Morocco's autonomy proposal the only basis for a just and lasting solution for enduring peace and prosperity. The deal reached makes the U.S. the only Western country to recognize Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. The U.N. was pressed on the Secretary-General's reaction. His spokesperson, Stefan Dujeric. We've just... Uh learned of this through uh, through a Twitter post. Um, we do not pick and choose from resolutions where we approve, where we don't approve. The, 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 the situation is resolutions are approved by the Security Council. The Secretary General uh, and his team work to implement them. He remains convinced uh, that a solution to the question of Western Sahara is possible. And that's in accordance with relevant Security Council resolutions, 2440, uh, 2548, uh, to name two. Uh, I must say that we, we found out about this, these developments uh, at the same time that you did. Uh, and on the, uh, on the issue of the – and I can't speak to – you know, you mentioned a quid pro quo. That's a question to ask the parties, uh, the parties involved. We've just seen the announcements. The White House proclamation says an independent Sahrawi state is not a realistic option for resolving the conflict and that genuine autonomy under Moroccan sovereignty is the only feasible solution, urging the parties to engage in discussions without delay. As part of the deal, Israel and Morocco would also restore diplomatic and other relations, immediately opening liaison offices in both capitals that would eventually lead to embassies. On the issue of normalization, uh, it is clear that we're always for, you know, the more countries have normal relations, bilateral, the better it is for multilateralism for the international community. We hope, uh, you know, that these, uh, uh, this can also lead to positive developments uh, in issues uh, in, in the Middle East, notably uh, between Israelis and Palestinians. The United Nations Security Council established in 1991 the UN mission for the referendum in Western Sahara, which at the time paved the way for a ceasefire between Morocco and the Polisario Front, which has for decades now sought independence for the region through the council-mandated referendum, which has never taken place. This was the Frente Polisario's UN representative, Dr. Sidi Omar, speaking on this issue in October last year. The Frente Polisario and the Sahrawi people accepted in 1991 to lay down arms in exchange of a self-determination referendum. That referendum has not been held. So we have and we have always had on the table the possibility of taking up arms and using all other uh, legitimate means to attain our rights. We have agreed to the ceasefire in exchange of a referendum. The referendum is not there, so the Sahrawis and the Polisario leadership will definitely take the appropriate decisions. Polisario says the U.S. broker deal will not change an inch of the reality of the ongoing conflict and the right of the people of Western Sahara to self-determination. South Africa, for its part, has been a fierce critic of the lack of progress in the Security Council on this file. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pees in New York. A very good morning. You are listening to Channel Africa. I'm Tabiso Lahoku, and we come in live to you from our Auckland Park in uh, Auckland Park Studios, rather in Johannesburg, South Africa. Now, the United States recorded over 3,000 deaths from coronavirus on Wednesday. A new record, as the country's Centers for Disease Control forecasts that. The national death toll could increase about up to 70,000 by the 2nd of January. This is an independent panel of the Food and Drug Administration meets today to vote on whether to recommend approval for emergency use authorization of the Pfizer vaccine, which has already received approvals in the UK, Canada and Saudi Arabia. The number of Americans hospitalized for COVID-19 reached over 106,000 on Wednesday, just as the country is beginning to see a new surge as a result of Thanksgiving gatherings in late November. Sherwin Braspies reports. 
3,053 deaths were recorded on Wednesday alone, more than the people who perished on 9-11. Over 16,000 have died over the last seven days. Put differently, the equivalent of 29 of the world's largest passenger aircrafts crashing in one week with no survivors. Dr. Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization. It's difficult right now for the likes of uh, CDC in Atlanta. I mean, the U.S. is accounting for a third of all world, world cases at the moment over the last number of weeks. The epidemic of, uh, in, in the U.S. is punishing. It's widespread. It's, 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 it's quite frankly yeah, shocking you know, to, to see one to two uh, persons a minute die uh, in the U.S., a, a country with a wonderful, uh, strong health system, uh, amazing technological capacities. And while the FDA could return an approval for the Pfizer vaccine as early as today, with the first vaccines administered in the days ahead, its impact on the current surge will be negligible, just as the case and death lag from Thanksgiving gatherings crash into Christmas. Listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So you have a surge upon a surge and then before you can handle that, more people are going to travel over Christmas. They're going to have more of those family and friends gatherings that you accurately said are an issue. So if those two things happen and we don't mitigate well, we don't listen to the public health measures that we need to follow, that we could start to see things really get bad in the middle of January. So I think not only for New York State, but for any state or city that is facing similar problems. Without substantial mitigation, the middle of January can be a really dark time for us. As hospital systems across the country buckle under the sheer breadth of the pandemic, with reports that regions serving some 100 million Americans have fewer than 15% of ICU beds available or worse, with frontline health workers bearing the brunt, like Lacey Gooch, a COVID ICU nurse in Omaha, Nebraska. We're understaffed. We have so much on our plates as nurses. There's not enough of us to help. We have, I think they said 10 COVID units, um, and one of those is just a place for people to go and pass away, unfortunately. Please take it seriously, wear your mask, um, and I hope I don't see you here. The incoming administration of President-elect Joe Biden placing its response to the pandemic front and center. Masking, vaccinations, opening schools. These are the three key goals for my first 100 days. 100 days to make a difference. It's not a political statement, it's a patriotic act. It won't be the end of our efforts, but it's a necessary and easy beginning, an easy start. Over 290,000 people have perished from the virus in the United States. Add to that the latest economic data that shows that more than 853,000 Americans filed first-time claims for unemployment in the last week, as the third wave of this pandemic puts the brakes on the little momentum the economy was able to achieve in the third quarter of the year. The country's latest jobs report released last Friday shows hiring slowed sharply in the restaurant and retail sectors as Congress struggles to reach agreement on a new stimulus package that could inject over $900 billion into the economy. I'm Sherman Ricepies in New York. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one -on -one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
The Garden Route District Municipalities Disaster Management Centre in South Africa's Western Cape Province has requested that the South African National Defence Force be deployed in the region. This as COVID-19 infections are still rising sharply, especially in the Gauteng area. The district has seen its infection rate double in last month with... Georgia currently at more than 1,800 active cases. Segri Chetty reports. George still tops the Western Cape with the most infections. Large social gatherings have been identified as one of the major super spreaders, while teenagers have been identified as being the most likely to carry the virus into their communities. Temeleto and Pucklesdorp are the current hotspots with the most infections. Residents of George are concerned about their safety. Every, if you can go to Timberlake to Zone 8, everyone, no one with mask, you will only see one, two people wearing masks. Even in town, in Texas, you don't get sanitizer. You used to get sanitizer during the lockdown, lockdown period. After that, no mask, even when they're chewing on the lines, no 1.5 meter distance. You must use your mask and it must cover your whole face. Please, people. We don't like to hear our friends, our families, he's been dead. Bed space at the George Provincial Hospital, especially in the ICU, is quickly running out. At least 46 staff members have tested positive. Public and sport facilities have already been closed for use. More stringent restrictions are expected to be announced soon for the region, with the possibility of the SNDF being deployed to enforce it. Karat Otto is the disaster management head for the Garden Route. We know that our law enforcement agencies is under severe strain. Many of the police members have tested positive. Many is in isolation, quarantine, and also our law enforcement officials at local municipalities. So to be able to do effective law enforcement, we've requested the SANF to come and assist again in this area. Community leaders like the Anglican Bishop of George have pleaded with residents to be more vigilant. Bishop Brian Maraj currently has COVID-19 and is in isolation. We as citizens must please behave responsibly, follow strictly the protocols. We ourselves need to manage our traveling carefully. Let us manage our alcohol intake. Let us control our gatherings, both in public and in private. In doing this, We will protect our loved ones, our fellow citizens and ourselves. Residents have once again been urged to change their behavioural patterns, to wear a mask, maintain social distance, sanitise and avoid crowded and confined spaces. I'm Segri Chetty and George in the Western Cape. Organised business and labour say South Africa cannot afford to go back to a hard national lockdown. This says the country is still reeling from news yesterday that the dreaded second wave of high COVID-19 infections has arrived. Mbongenimoto has more. The COVID-19 second wave comes on the back of a strong economic rebound in the third quarter. GDP grew by 13.5% in the third quarter from a historic 51% decline in the second quarter due to the hard lockdown to curb the spread of the coronavirus. Government is yet to decide whether or not to impose new restrictions in the country. For its part, business says it's against the reintroduction of a hard national lockdown. Instead, it is calling for targeted interventions in various hotspots around the country. The CEO of Business Unit South Africa, Kers Kovadia, explains. We don't think a lockdown, moving from lockdown level one to higher levels of lockdown, the economy cannot bear that. Even though we've had a growth in GDP in the last period, but we're still predicting about an 8% drop in GDP for the year. Kosatu is also against another hard national lockdown. Kosatu spokesperson Sizwe Pamla. Already we have lost more than 2 million jobs. Uh, if, if, if then you add another uh, hard lockdown, it will mean that uh, even the festive boost that we are hoping for uh, to at least absorb some of the people on a temporary basis, uh, even that will not happen. So look, we, we, but lives come first. Uh, there has to be some serious interventions coming from government. Uh, the private sector itself, uh, they, they, they've 
really been relaxed. You go in, into malls, you go into many of the uh, 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 facilities. People have forgotten that uh, COVID-19 still exists. Uh, 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 sanitizers are no longer supplied. They don't uh, force people to wear masks. We still believe that government can do much more than they are currently doing to enforce uh, all of these regulations at a workplace level, but also uh, uh, around our communities. There is something that can still be done, but uh, uh, falling short of the hard lockdown, we don't think as an economy and as a country we can afford another hard lockdown. With unemployment currently sitting at a high level of 43% when discouraged work seekers are included, it seems that South Africa can ill afford another total shutdown of the economy even if it is to fight the effects of a second wave of COVID-19 infections. I am Bonga Imushu in Johannesburg. South Africa's Solidarity Fund says it will be making a 327 million rand down payment towards a COVID-19 vaccine as early as next week. The deputy chairperson of the Solidarity Fund, Adrian Anthoven, says that the repayment will help to secure a vaccine for 10% of the South African population. The Solidarity Fund says it has allocated over 800 million rand towards the procurement of personal protective equipment and 400 million rand towards testing. Anthoven was delivering a virtual presentation at the Solidarity Fund's impact report release on Thursday. Naledi Ngobo reports. Antoven says while healthcare workers and highly vulnerable segments of the population may be prioritized, the allocation of the vaccine will ultimately be decided by the government. The fund raised a total amount of 3.1 billion rand with just over 400 million rand currently remaining. As you know from uh, what's been shared, uh, we've committed 320 odd million rand actually uh, just to be clear the amount that we've committed is actually a dollar amount it's it's uh, around 19.2 million dollars so the strengthening of the rand uh, is certainly in in uh, you know will help uh, uh, in our favor the solidarity funds health executive jonathan bloomberg says the public health system is sufficiently equipped to deal with the second wave of infections um, the, the mechanisms for supporting the public hospital system through the fund were firstly through the procurement of PPE, and this was uh, the largest area of our support, uh, approximately you know, 900 million. The second area, aside from PPE, was the procurement of essential equipment, including uh, ventilators. Uh, the fund has provided support to three provinces heavily impacted by the epidemic, that's the Eastern Cape, the Western Cape and Gauteng. Head of Disbursements and Deployment at the Solidarity Fund, Nicola Galovic, says over 100 million rand and 40 million rand have been allocated towards food relief programs and gender-based violence initiatives, respectively. While there was the surge in, in, civil, in civic activity, it tended to be in the metros and it was uneven, uh, unevenly distributed and the Solidarity Fund has stepped in to, to both scale up and, and address the gaps in these food, uh, food relief efforts and to support the scale-up of the gender-based violence uh, interventions. The Solidarity Fund says it is currently not raising any more funds and will not be providing any further funding towards a vaccine. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. It's a time now for your news headlines, and here's Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. I'm Anne Musa. Good morning. In the headlines, Ghana's President Nana Akufu Adu has appointed a 15 member transition team as he readies to begin his second term. New coronavirus infections are continuing to rise exponentially in South Africa as the country records another 8,166 cases in the past 24 hour cycle. And Sudan's interim government has cancelled more than 3,500 passports issued to foreign residents by the government of ousted President Umar Abushir. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
South Africa's opposition Democratic Alliance says it is satisfied with the oversight performance of its members of parliament over the past year. The party says the work of its MPs have ensured, among others, that parliament continued to sit during the COVID-19 lockdown. It says its members were responsible to two-thirds of questions to the executive. The party held a media briefing to review its performance. Joseph Musia reports. Every year, the DA assesses the work of its members of parliament and their impact on the executive and legislation. The party says it is particularly pleased that its efforts helped avert the total closure of parliament during the lockdown and that committee meetings continued, albeit virtually. Chief Whip Natasha Mazzoni. Government accepted the DA's proposal on the Unemployment Insurance Fund, a reprieve. The proposal also allowed for businesses to skip UIF payment and expand UIF uh, coverage to better protect uh, affected workers, which we were very pleased about. And we thank our shadow ministers of uh, Labour who helped tremendously in this massive fight. We continued our opposition to the Section 25 Amendment to the Constitution, which is the compensation, uh, expropriation without compensation. We have a full committee that's working on that continuously, and the fight continues from the DA. The party says it would like to see Parliament resume normal sittings from next year, as it believes that there are adequate measures in Parliament to ensure everyone is safe. Mazzoni says members are falling into a comfort zone by being away from Parliament. She says if the rest of the country is expected to be back at work, parliamentarians should lead by example. We have nothing to be afraid of in Parliament and we lead from the front. And as MPs, people look to us um, for guidance. And I think we should be, if everyone else is going back to work and scholars and learners and teachers are going back to school, we need to be going back to Parliament in full force. And I look forward to Parliament opening, uh, you know, fully operational next year. And I'm certainly going to be pushing for that uh, on instruction from our parliamentary leader, John Steenhuizen. The party added that it will intensify its call for the establishment of an oversight committee for the presidency. It says it is not acceptable that parliament has no mechanism to hold the presidency accountable for the funds allocated to it. The party says this is necessary since the presidency's budget allocation is larger than that of some departments. Party leader John Steenhuizen says parliament cannot wait until the president appears in parliament to answer questions, which happens only four times a year. What we'll be doing in the new year is um, driving a new program which looks at how we can enhance oversight and accountability of Parliament and to take Parliament from being a, a lapdog back into being a watchdog. Far too many instances that we've seen over the course of the last year, committees have just let things slide when they are politically inconvenient and uncomfortable to deal with them. Uh, what we need to do is to reassert Parliament's role in terms of holding their executive accountable, and that includes the president. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. The number of African countries currently receiving black Americans returning to Africa is surging. Rwanda is adding on the list of those that have so far been receiving black Americans with intentions to stay. Some have shown interest of applying for citizenship and the Rwandan government says the admission is under consideration. Sylvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. Africa is their home, they say. They left the hell to live in paradise. Their stories hinge on what they refer to as ordeals of living in the United States of America as blacks. Some have spent years in Africa. Others have just returned to the continent to find areas where they could establish their businesses. One of those greener areas is Rwanda, they admit. But one thing is what Aymakos Okof and Marsha Favi, both coming from the United States of America but in different states, have in common. I escaped from America. Why? One, racism. Two, poor opportunities. And the fact that, unfortunately, over the years I've been traveling around the world. I've backpacked through South America. I've lived in the Caribbean. But because of the negative hype about Africa, 
I never wanted to come here. We were stolen people from Africa, from all over different areas of Africa. We never got a chance to really know who we are, where we come from, to be amongst our own people. Um, there's a lot of miseducation in the U.S. for our children. We're not taught black excellence. We're taught white excellence. So when we grow up, that's what we look up to. That's what we look forward to. And we could never fill those shoes or those positions because they're blocked by white people. Having lost a touch with their ancestral motherland, most of them believe it has had an impact on their lives. But in the end, a glaring reef is knocking on the door. If I had known that Africa was what it was and what it is, I would have been in Africa long time ago. We're open to be who we can be, where we have uh, role models like the minister, like Paul Kigami, that um, our children can look up to. And our president here is black. Uh, the minister is black. <laughs> Everybody looks like my son. My son is, you know, he's a very tall <laughs> child. He's going to be, uh, you know, very tall and with stature. And in the U.S., that's a threat. Here, he's, he's not a, he won't be a black man, he's just a man. Here, I'm a, I'm a woman. I'm not a black woman, I'm just a woman. But why Rwanda, a country that has seen a tragic genocide in the last over two decades, which still shakes off itself from the consequences brought about by the genocide aftermath? Uh, the, the people here um, can't really understand or, or relate to what we went through. I know, I know this country went through some things as well, but we need healing as well. And here, it's a, it's a healing environment. Um, amazing the way this country has healed and come back together. And we need that coming from the U.S., from um, being told that we're someone else, being told that we're, we're not valued or we're not uh, good enough. Here, like I said, sky's the limit. We, everything is open for us. We, we're not blocked out of any type of business. We're not blocked out of any type of opportunities. And... Um, just a feeling that like that welcome home is just enough, a lot to us. It means a lot and it, it's healing and um, that we have a lot more healing to do. A lot of us that come here, we have a chip on our shoulder and we're angry. But when, we, when I touch down and you reach uh, Rwanda, that anger melts away. Uh, you, you find your heart softening and just healing, just healing starts as when we land. The Foreign Affairs Minister in Rwanda says receiving such people would mean a lot for this country with ambitious economic and development goals. Professor Shuti Manasse is a state minister in the Foreign Affairs Ministry in Rwanda. We are going through with the procedures that they need to go through and trying to see what's best. However, some of them also have relatives who want to come and stay too. For example, Ghana started a program to host Coming Back to Africa, which is their big project, bringing a lot of money and knowledge that we all want. But as our true African brothers and sisters, we appreciate it and will not send them back. The Minister of Foreign Affairs says more than 100 people have already submitted such requests. These applicants for Rwandan citizenship fall into two different categories, those with advanced knowledge based on what they studied and those who want to invest in the country. Silvanus Karimera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. The Pretoria High Court in South Africa will today deliver judgment on an independent application challenging the instruction by the Basic Education Department for the rewriting of two leaked metric exam papers. Teachers Union, Satu, Lobby Group, AfriForum and independent pupils have brought the application on an urgent basis. The two papers in question are Physical Science Paper 2 and Mathematics Paper 2. Malutu Obuseng reports. The parties are seeking an urgent court interdict against Basic Education Minister Njimu's Hekasa announcement that the two papers must be rewritten. They want the court to hold the impending rewrite of the metric physical science paper 2 and mathematics paper 2 examinations. 
They are asking the court for an order to set aside the announcement that leaked papers must be rewritten. They also want the court to compel the Department and Quality Assurance Body, Umalusi, to mark the scripts of foreigners represented by AfriForum and those who were not involved in the alleged irregularity regarding the leaked papers. The four learners that AfriForum represent were in court. One of them, Anika Janse van Rensberg of Menlo Park Girls School, says it is unfair on them to rewrite because they never saw leaked examination papers. I don't want to write because I have, I'm innocent and I haven't cheated and I haven't seen the, the exams, the exam papers. So I just feel that it's very um, not right for to let the innocent people ride. Jansef van Rensberg and three other learners were represented by AfriForum's Willi Spies. Spies outlined what they sought from the court. Our prayer for the record firstly was that the rewrite of the exam be interdicted. In other words, there is an interdict against the rewrite uh, of uh, next Tuesday and Thursday. Secondly, uh, an order compelling the department to mark the answering scripts of those learners who wrote the exams, to allocate those marks and to publish those marks. And lastly also for an interdict to prevent the department from destroying the answering scripts of the two contested examinations. Meanwhile, the Department of Basic Education says it has full confidence in the justice system. The department spokesperson Eliza Mklanga. Either way we are ready for anything. So. No, we put a strong case. It's there in our documents and we believe that uh, we have explained the intricacies of running the examinations and the challenges that we faced during the investigation. And uh, we believe that uh, the judge will use all the input that we made today to make uh, the, the ruling. So we are waiting for it. Judgment will be delivered electronically at 2 o'clock. I am Maluti Ubuseng, Pretoria. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September, 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. And I'm Tabi Sorohoku with an economic update. Hello. Botswana Stock Exchange is set to lose another company after stakeholders voted to delist the Uranium Explorer, bringing down the number of companies listed on the local boss, which has been losing participants that it has been adding. The Australian miner ACAP listed on the BSE's Venture Capital Board will be exiting the local stock market following decision by major shareholders to delist. The junior mine explorer listed in 2006 and though it's not listed on the main board. The loss of ACAP is a setback for one of Africa's most resilient stock exchange which last year lost two major companies, Wilderness Holdings Limited and Fernmont after they delisted. 
The Rwandan government's commitment to eradicate malnutrition has been at a seen a triple the funding that it injects into the process, rising from seven million to fifty-five million U.S. dollars between 2015 and 2018. This was revealed by the Director General of the National Child Development Agency, Anita Asimwe, at the ongoing high-level workshop aimed at strengthening the capacity of parliamentarians to review and track national resources allocated to programs fighting mal nutrition among children and women. According to the latest demographic and health survey released last week by National Institute of Statistics of Rwanda, the percentage of stunted children under the age of five dropped from 38% to 33% in the last five years. According to Zimbabwe Poultry Association Chairman Solomon Zawe, Zimbabwe's poultry sector has registered a 42% growth during the third quarter of this year, compared to the same period last year after producing an average of 19.5 million day-old chick. However, a quarterly average production of 6.5 million chicks per month was insufficient to meet resurgent demand after government lifted some COVID-19 lockdown restrictions, allowing improvement or rather improved movement of people and resumption of business operations. On imports, Zawa said statistics showed limited imports of poultry products. In South Africa, organized labor and business say South Africa cannot afford to go back to a hard national lockdown. This as the country is still reeling from news that the dreaded second wave of high COVID-19 infections has arrived. Mungenimuto has more. The COVID-19 second wave comes on the back of a strong economic rebound in the third quarter. GDP grew by 13.5% in the third quarter from a historic 51% decline in the second quarter due to the hard lockdown to curb the spread of the coronavirus. Government is yet to decide whether or not to impose new restrictions in the country. For its part, business says it's against the reintroduction of a hard national lockdown. Instead, it is calling for targeted interventions in various hotspots around the country. The Lesotho Alliance Insurance Company has joined hands with Maluti Mountain Brewery on an initiative to rescue local entertainers. The two companies' collaboration was announced early this week. The decision comes after they realized that the local entertainment industry was in distress during the COVID-19 pandemic. The government shut down entertainment businesses after it imposed a national lockdown in March. The U.S. dollar is trading at 379.86 Nigerian Nara, 10.83 Botswana Pula, 110.58 Kenyan Shilling and 21.3 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, starting in Brazil, one U.S. dollar is trading at 5.11 Russia, 73 rubles, 36 India, 73 rupees 62. In China, a dollar is changing hands at 61.54. And in South Africa, it's a trading at 14.99. The US dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and 82 cents to euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold is trading at $1,836 and platinum at $1,027 per ounce. Brand crude oil is at $50.28 a barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoko on Africa's Most Listened. Up next, Figile Nwati with a sport update. Figile. First up in our sports update, it's boxing news. Anthony Joshua says he's prepared for his heavyweight title fight against Kubrat Pulev on Saturday night to go to the final bell as he returns the ring after a 12-month absence. The British boxer will be in action for the first time since he outpointed Andy Ruiz Jr. in Saudi Arabia to regain the WBA, WBO, an IBF belt he lost to the same opponent at Madison Square Garden in June 2019. 
Joshua was due to face Pulev in 2017, but a shoulder injury forced the Bulgarian to pull out. Joshua says he's prepared for it to go to the final bell and says he feels he is a 15-round fighter and if it needs to go 12, he's ready. I know Kubrat Pulev for many years. I was in the training camp when his brother was sparring Warren Baster. I was in Vladimir Klitschko's camp when he was preparing for Kubrat Pulev. So I understand some of the tactics that needs to go into beating Pulev. And um, I'm prepared for it to go to the final bell, of course. I'm, I feel like I'm a 15-round fighter. I'm not a 12-round fighter. I'm a 15-round fighter. So if it needs to go to 12 rounds, I'll be more than capable to carry my stamina, to carry my boxing IQ, my concentration, and my strength until the final bell. Pulev says he had been waiting for this moment to fight Joshua after he was denied a world title shot in 2017 when he suffered the shoulder injury in training ahead of the scheduled fight in Cardiff. I think I have everything. I'm ready, yes, of course, to respect from Anthony because, yeah, uh, Olympic uh, champion and world champion and, yeah, respect, good fighter. Uh, but, but I'm ready and I have everything to be champion. On to cricket news. Cricket South Africa, CSA and Sri Lanka cricket have jointly confirmed that there are two test series scheduled to be played in Centurion and Johannesburg starting on the 26th of December will go ahead as planned. The series forms part of the ICC World Test Championship. The Sri Lanka team will leave for South Africa as scheduled later this month while head coach Mickey Arthur accompanied by a health specialist, will travel to South Africa with immediate effect to assess the situation and make necessary arrangements for the team's arrival. The sides will only play tests with no T20 internationals, nor ODIs scheduled. Dr. Kenneth Kawunda have booked their spot in the semi-finals of the ongoing SPA Women's National Championships, beating Eguruleni 58-16 yesterday at Zwartkluf Private Game Reserve in Bilabila in South Africa's Limpopo province. They are the only team that has won all their games in the round-robin stages of the tournament. They will play Cape Town in today's semi-final. Dr. K. Kawunda, head coach, Dr. Elsie Jordan, is pleased with how her team played building up to the semis taking into consideration that the squad is made up of new young players. Individually, we're on a journey with every player and they're building and growing. And, you know, if we get the wins along the line, it's great. And uh, when we struggle, we have to go back and, and learn and, you know, dry off the tears and then start again. You know, with the young ones, they, they still, I don't know, it's, they just, they, it looks like they're scared for their bodies. Yeah, it's just a great journey, you know, being with them and seeing how they grow. And for me as a coach, you know, it's a different experience. I'm coaching different things and it's a new challenge and I love it. You know, I just love the, the, whole, the whole process. And finally, the International Federation of Volleyball, the FIVB, has confirmed that the 2020 FIVB Beach Volleyball World Tour, Star 2, has been postponed to 2021. After a year in which the number of events on the FIVB schedule plummeted from 46 to 14, the FIVB has released a tentative schedule for the 2021 season. Lake Kivu in Rubavu district in the western province of Rwanda remains the host city of the event. The four-day tournament is scheduled for the 10th to the 14th of February. Christian Hajuminama, the executive secretary of Rwanda Volleyball Federation, confirmed the development. Japan men and the Netherlands in the women's category were the winners of the 2019 FIVB Beach Volleyball World Tour Star, which was also held in Rubavu District. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
And that's it. It's been Africa Rise and Shine here in Channel Africa. My name is Tony Sodohuku. I've been your host this morning. Uh, Pumuzo Ramagata is the producer. And I've got the wise man. He'd been running the desk and was on the news. And Figi with the sport update. I've been on the econ as well. Um, uh, it's Channel Africa. You can catch us on Twitter. Channel Africa. We're on Facebook. Book. Yeah, that's it from us. Uh, this is the final hour. Nothing after this. More from the next team. Until next week, it's a uh, goodbye. Mm-hmm.